Our sermon text today is taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that um, I'm not going to be left to myself here, and none of us is. Thank you that it is your, uh, your mission uh, to glorify uh, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, by taking what belongs to him and disclosing it uh, to us, disclosing it to those who are already his people, that uh, we would see uh, the glories of our Savior more clearly, the wonder uh, of, of his mission and his message, and also that you would be at work today. Uh, in the lives of those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, to make him known and to draw them uh, to the Lord Jesus. We pray that that might happen and that even this morning uh, the gift of salvation uh, would be bestowed as you, Holy Spirit, uh, give a new life according to the will of God and for the glory of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We've been uh, working our way through Matthew 1 uh, during Advent. And uh, we, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish uh, this morning. And then on Christmas morning, we'll look at the three wise men in Matthew 2, bringing gifts to Jesus. Um, but uh, this morning, uh, what I want to look at is, is the names, and, na- and that's names plural, uh, that are given to Jesus in our passage. Did you notice that? Twice. Two different names are given to Jesus in Matthew's account. And it's almost like a Matthew's account. Matthew structures the account of uh, our Lord's birth in such a way that it's really a meditation or celebration on these uh, two wonderful names. The first, the name of Jesus in verse 21. And secondly, the name Emmanuel uh, in verse uh, 23. Now. Um, I don't know how many of you are J.R.R. Tolkien fans uh, out there, but if you are, you know that in the middle book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers, there's a character whose name is Treebeard. And if I tell you that he's a tree, you might not be surprised given that name. But at one point, there's an exchange between between Treebeard. Just hang in there. This will we'll reconnect with reality here in a minute. 
There's a there's a character named Treebeard and he's having a who is a tree and he's having a conversation with somebody who asks him what his name is. And this other character wants to know it's a very normal thing to ask, uh, what's your name? And Treebeard says, "Well, my name is like a story. Real names tell you the story of the thing that they belong to." Now, Matthew would completely agree with that. You notice both names that he gives us for the Lord Jesus. He appends a story to them, doesn't he? You will call his name Jesus, the name. What's the story of the name? For he will save his people from their sins. And then Emmanuel, which means God with us. And those uh, two names, each name is given with a story about uh, the Lord Jesus. And together, those two names tell us the story of who Jesus is, what he came to do. So we're going to look at the story of Jesus and his two names under these three headings. The meaning of Jesus. These two names together tell us about the meaning of Jesus. They tell us about the mission of Jesus. And they tell us about the message of Jesus. Meaning, mission, and message. So let's think, first of all, about the meaning of Jesus. And, and, and really, the first thing to say here is that if these names are a story of Jesus, that means uh, that there's somebody who's an author of that story, right? That's where we need to begin. Uh, what these names uh, tell us uh, about Jesus is that the story about Jesus has an author. And the author is God. They tell us a true story about Jesus in a way that makes clear for both names that God is the author of that story. That he is the one who's telling us the story about Jesus. That he is the exclusive owner of the meaning of Jesus. Now, I'll explain why that's important here in a minute. But at the front end, I just want you to see this, that both times... When Matthew is explaining what Jesus' name is, he makes sure that we understand that God isn't leaving us any room to fill in what Jesus' name means, as if it were somehow some kind of work or project that God had left undone. Both times, uh, the explanation for the names of both Jesus and Emmanuel, uh, Matthew is very clear that it's God who's the one who's giving the meaning of those names. So if you want to know who Jesus is, you have to yield to who God says he is. We need to hear that at Christmas, right? Uh, because uh, the name of Jesus and the story of Jesus is bandied about and reshaped and as though men were the copyright owners. Uh, but in both cases here, God uh, make sure that we understand he's the owner of the meaning of Jesus. Look at it. Emmanuel, verses uh, 22 and 23. Uh, God, uh, God prophesied. Matthew makes sure we know that, that uh, the name Emmanuel that, that Jesus will be called by is a name that originated with God and not with men. Verse uh, 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In other words, when men call Jesus Emmanuel and when we recognize that who Jesus is, is Emmanuel, God with us, we're simply echoing the meaning of Jesus that God has already announced he'll have. 
And the same thing is true for the name Jesus in verse 21. For you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the reason, one of the reasons Matthew spent so much time on this is it's very important. You'll remember back in the beginning of our, our series on the book of Matthew, we started in the genealogy. And you remember that from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's identifying Jesus as the son of David, which means that he's the heir to David's throne, which means that he's a king. But in order for him to be a son of David, he has to be an heir of David. Well, how's he going to be an heir for da- heir of David if Joseph is the one whose lineage from David is traced, but Mary is his mother? And Mary's not in David's line. And a Jewish genealogy would have proceeded from the father. So how is it that Jesus is going to be legitimately a Davidic heir and so rightfully entitled to be the one who sits on the throne? That's totally critical. If that's, if that's not fulfilled, then Jesus isn't the Messiah. And so what happens is uh, God uh, gives to Joseph through the angel, the instruction to take the child that he is not the biological father of to adopt that child because it's conceived by the Holy Spirit and then to name the son. Which signifies his adoption of the child. And thereby legitimates Jesus as an heir of David. But even then, Notice that God gives him the name. You're going to name him Jesus. And here's why. Well, why am I taking time uh, to emphasize this point at the front end, uh, particularly on the inside of the church? Well, it's because, and I hope you won't take this the wrong way, it's because we've all got uh, more than a little of Thomas Jefferson in us. He's my least favorite founding father, so it pains me to admit that. But you know the story about Thomas Jefferson. Classic uh, embodiment of everything that the Enlightenment represented. He said, hey, listen, Jesus was a great ethical teacher. You know what what Thomas Jefferson did with his New Testament? He took out all the references. He literally cut out all the references to the supernatural. And he remade Jesus, uh, or at least so he uh, claimed to do, remade Jesus uh, into just a, a, a wise ethical teacher. Now, friends, we laugh about that. We say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know what? We do it all the time. Uh, liberals do it. They will, they will do the same thing Jefferson did. They will say, well, this really isn't the word of God. It, it might contain the word of God. And, and perhaps uh, there are some good things that we can glean about Jesus. As though Jesus uh, were like this bucket with Jesus on the side of it. We could tip it upside down and empty the contents out and then refill it with whatever we want and call it Jesus. Well, you see what Matthew's saying? He's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Uh, The meaning of Jesus is a God-given meaning, a God-determined meaning. But it's not just liberals that do that. I do it, you do it. We're all dealing at some level 
uh, repeatedly with caricatures of who the Lord really is. You notice how there, for everyone, there are things in the Bible and particularly in the teachings of Jesus. This is true for everybody. I don't care how long, I don't care whether you're a non-Christian or how long you've been a Christian. There are certain things in the Gospels when you read Jesus saying, you go, yeah. And then there are always other things that you go, I hope I can read that quickly. Jesus offends everyone. Jesus challenges everyone. Would you believe that he was God incarnate if he didn't? What we all need is to come back to acknowledging that God is the one who tells us who Jesus is, who he really is. And if you want to know Jesus, you have to know who God says he is. And there's only one way you're going to know that through the scriptures. Otherwise, you're going to be making Jesus up according to your own image. You're going to be Thomas Jefferson. So what about the, the two names specifically? What do they mean? God's the establisher of the meaning. God's the one who fills that bucket up, if you will, and doesn't leave any room for us to either take stuff out or put stuff in. Jesus' meaning is what God says it is. Okay, what does it mean? What, are the, what do these names mean? Well, look, uh, let's think about the relationship between the two of them. Let's take the older one first, which is Emmanuel. And you know that that comes from Isaiah chapter 7. It's very interesting. When we hear the word Emmanuel, uh, that's a very special name for us. It's the name of our church. And, and ordinarily, when people hear at Christmas time, Emmanuel, and then Matthew's parenthetical says, which means God with us. That feels to us like a great comfort, doesn't it? But if you go back to Isaiah 7, what you'll realize is that we have really lost track of the original context of that promise. In Isaiah 7, uh, there's a king named King Ahaz, who's king of Judah. And he finds himself in a very difficult pickle militarily and politically. He's got two powers, two smaller powers from the north who are trying to attack him. And so he has planned to go to the bigger neighbor to the northwest, the Assyrians, and to get in league with the big guy to protect him against the little guys. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and says, listen, Ahaz, trust God. God's going to take care of you. He will defend the throne of David. He will preserve you. Trust him. And Isaiah, on God's command, says to Ahaz, the king, who's trembling, says, go ahead, ask me for a sign to prove to you that I will be faithful to you. And Ahaz says, oh, no, I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not ask for a sign. That sounds pious, right? But it's actually unbelief. And God sees right through it to the end. He says, listen, don't weary God, Isaiah says this on behalf of the Lord. Don't weary the Lord. I'm going to give you a sign. God says, I'm going to give you a sign in spite of your unbelief. And in fact, the sign I give you is going to be a sign of my judgment upon your unbelief. And let me tell you what the sign is. A virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. That's very surprising, isn't it? That in the original context, what Emmanuel means, 
This name that Matthew ascribes to Jesus means originally God's judgment upon the unbelief of his people. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that if that was the only name given for Jesus, that wouldn't feel like good news, right? So that's what makes the second name given to the Lord here so powerful. Because he's not just called Emmanuel. He's called Jesus. It's a name that's so familiar, we don't, we've stopped asking what it means. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And you know what Joshua means? Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Now think about that. He's Emmanuel, the sign of God's presence in judgment against the unbelief of his people. God with us as a judge. And this other name that God gives to Jesus, Yahweh is salvation. And it's very remarkable when you pay attention to the story that God appends to the name Jesus. Why is it that he is to be named Jesus? Why is it that this child is to be named Jesus? It's very interesting. You know, when Joshua was named Joshua, what Joshua was was a witness to the fact that that Yahweh is salvation because his name says Yahweh is salvation. So Joshua's life is a testimony to the fact that Yahweh is the one who saves. But notice what God says through the angel to Joseph. He says, you're going to name him Joshua. Why? Because Yahweh is going to save his people from their sins? No. Name him Joshua because he will save his people from their sins. You see what's being said there? That is, what that is saying is that Jesus, this child conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is Yahweh. So Jesus isn't just a witness to the fact that Yahweh is salvation. He actually is Yahweh come to save. By the way, If you want a very powerful proof of the deity of Christ that I think if you're dealing with a Jehovah's Witness or somebody who's questioning that, just follow that chain of logic again. Matthew 121, it's very clear. So friends, notice these two strands. The meaning of Jesus has two strands. Strand one is God present with us to judge the unbelief of men and God Present with us to save. Now, how that works out, we'll see in a few minutes. But notice how these two names tell us a story about Jesus. And it's going to lead us to our second point, which is how the relationship between those two names explains Jesus' mission to us. And think about the two names. Jesus' mission is reflected in these two names. I don't know if you've ever, ever realized this about the two names, but the first name, Jesus, 
is really a statement of the nature or the purpose of Jesus's mission. What has he come to do? He has come to save his people from their sins. And the second name, Emmanuel, is really a statement of how he's going to do it. It's his strategy. One is the nature of his mission, Jesus who's going to be the savior of his people from their sins. And the second one is Emmanuel. How is he going to do that? By being God with us. Let's think first of all about Jesus, the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. It tells us three things. It tells us that he's come to be a savior it tells us that he's come to save us from our sins. What, what has he come to save us from? And it tells us whom he's going to save. He's come to be a savior. Now, friends, what that means uh, from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel is we're being reminded again that Christianity is what you could call a rescue religion. The gospel is about a rescue. Now, Jesus didn't come to just be a teacher. He didn't come to just make us wise. He didn't, just, he didn't come to just put the bad guys down. He came to be a savior. He came to rescue us. Friends, the presence of Jesus in the world is proof that we need to be saved. We need much more than to be taught. We need something more than wisdom. If all Jesus came to do was to teach us, then we're without hope. If all Jesus came to do was to show us the way of wisdom, then we're without hope. We need a Savior. If all Jesus came to do was to show us, to give us an example of what a moral, upstanding life would be. Friends, we don't have hope because we know we can't live up to that. What we need is to be saved. That's what Jesus' name is saying. Regardless of what we think, think our most urgent need is God is announcing from the very beginning that what Jesus's life, what his death, what his whole ministry is going to be about is about pushing to the front the most important issue that belongs in the front of every life, which means exactly what Clay articulated. We are in a crisis in the world. And until we're in Christ, we're on the wrong side of that crisis. And if you don't know that your greatest need is to be saved, there's only one reason you don't know it, and it's because you don't know God. If you knew God, how perfectly righteous He is, how holy He is, how good He is, how gracious He is, then you would know that you haven't lived You'd know yourself accurately. If you knew God accurately, you'd know yourself accurately. And you would know that you haven't lived like God was that great. Your life isn't organized like God is that great and that good. You haven't returned thanks to Him, Paul says. You haven't blessed Him. You haven't organized your life around Him. He's a compartment. He's in a Tupperware that you pull out sometimes. But you're not dealing with Him as the King. And if you knew Him, Jesus' name is telling us, if you knew him, you would know that your greatest need is to be saved from yourself. Jesus came to be a savior. Savior from what? From their sins. 
And I want you to hear a note of grace there immediately, right? <laughs> There's a note of grace. We need to be rescued and we need to be rescued from our sins and Jesus came to do that. Now, if you'd taken a poll, and you can see it in the Gospels, if you'd taken a poll uh, of most uh, first century Jews, they would have said, and you'd ask them if, if uh, George Gallup had gone through Jerusalem and said, true or false, do you believe you need to be rescued? They'd all say yes. They'd all say yes. They'd say, look around. Look at these Romans. Look at the pagans in charge of us. Look at these godless Gentiles in the Holy Land, and we're subject to them. Look at how we have for centuries since the exile, we've been subjugated and we've been oppressed politically and the glory of the kingdom uh, that God had promised to us through David, we have been prevented from living up to that. Yes, we need to be rescued from the things that are out there, from the things that are affecting uh, our lives and 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 constraining us. Yes, we need to be rescued. And you can see it in the Gospels over and over and over again, right? As soon as they get a sense, the people get a sense that Jesus has power. They want to make him king. But king in a particular way, and so he hides himself. And he speaks indirectly for so long in his ministry about the Son of Man, the Son of Man, as though the Son of Man were this third person. What the Jews wanted, what the first century Jews wanted, was they wanted a rescue. They agreed they needed to be rescued. And they agreed that the Messiah, when he came, would be the rescuer. But what they wanted to be rescued from, what they thought they wanted to be, what they thought they, they needed to be rescued from, was out there, not in here. It was be rescued from other people's sins, not their own. And you notice Jesus is just relentless. If you read the Gospels, he keeps putting his finger right back on them. He won't ever let them say, yeah, the problem's over there. No, friends, the problem, Jesus kept pointing to it again and again. He said, Jesus said, the problem's in you. And that's why he kept uh, alienating. The Jewish leaders, because he was coming to the people who thought themselves the most righteous and on the on the strongest, most secure side of righteousness. He was saying, guess what? The problem in Israel is not out there. It's not Romans. It's Israel. And that's why every time Jesus predicted his death, he always predicted that the first step in what would lead to his death was his betrayal, not by the Romans, but by the Jewish religious leaders. Why did they hate him so much? Because he kept saying, the Messiah's mission is about saving you from your sins. The Messiah's mission is about rescuing you, not in a way that proves that you're right, but in a way that proves that God has been right all along. Now, friends, we're exactly the same. Uh, We love Jesus and we're all happy to be cuddly with him. As long as he's talking to us about someone else's sins. Or about something else. Address this problem in the world. Free me from suffering. Teach me how to communicate better with my spouse. Make sure my kids don't go sideways. Make sure my job is fulfilling. 
Make sure I don't have any trouble. Make sure my relationships go well. Give me some principles, O wise Jesus, so that I can live in a way that shows that you think I'm right. And Jesus has only one angle of approach to anyone. And it's this. I am here to rescue, but I am here to rescue in a way that shows that God is right. Well, who is it that Jesus rescues? God says he's going to rescue his people. And what we're going to see in the gospel is that that's very narrow and very broad at the same time. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, call him Jesus, for he will save the world from their sins. That's what we expect the angel to say, right? That's uh, what we expect God to say. You know, we, and we say, well, what's your proof of that? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's very broad, right? Yeah, but have you, have you paid attention to the last part of the verse? It's very narrow. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that the whole world might be... So that whoever, that's a broad word, whoever believes in Him should not perish. See, the Gospel is always very broad and very narrow at the same time. God's love is very broad and very narrow at the same time. And even here in the announcement of Jesus' name, we are being told something that we're going to see played out over the whole distance of the gospel, which is that Jesus' mission is very broad and very narrow at the same time. And that's not a contradiction. It's going to include much more than just Israel. Even we saw it in the genealogy, right? The Gentiles in the Jewish Messiah's genealogy. We're going to see it next week on Christmas morning when the when the wise men come from the east, meaning they're Gentiles. And when the gospel ends, what we see is that Jesus's people are dispersed throughout all the nations. That's why the disciples, why the church is charged with going to all the nations. It's to gather the people of Jesus whom he has saved. Very narrow. Only his people's sins will be forgiven. Only them. No one who is among his people will fail to have their sins forgiven, but only those who are among their people will be saved from their sins. And so the question that raises is, are you one of his? And you know how you know? You know how you can know infallibly? You can know certainly that when that promise is made in Matthew one twenty one, that you're in that promise? You can know to 100% certainty that you are one of his people. It's both the simplest thing and the most impossible thing for a human being to do at the same time. And it is to humble yourself in repentance and acknowledge that you're a great sinner who needs a great Savior and acknowledge in humble, grateful faith that Jesus Christ alone is that great Savior of great sinners. 
Friends, if in sincerity from the heart you do that, even in this very instant, I say to you on the authority of God's word that you are included in that promise. Jesus' name is also a guarantee. What we're meant to hear in this name of Jesus in verse 21 is that God has absolutely, unconditionally guaranteed the success of Jesus' mission. He came to be a savior. He came to save his people from their sins. And that's what Jesus' name tells us. And it also tells us that God is guaranteeing the absolute, total, comprehensive success of that mission. Jesus' name is the Father's interpretation of his life. He says, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Father saying at the front end of Jesus' life, this is what Jesus' life is going to be about and what it's going to accomplish. There's a, a group of people called His people and Jesus is going to live and die as the God-man in such a way and rise again as the God-man in such a way that He is actually going to save He is going to purchase salvation. He's not becoming incarnate. And he's not going to live and die and rise again merely to make salvation available. Because he will actually save his people from their sins. He's not, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is not overshadowing Mary. And the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is not taking on a human body and human flesh so that he could be a mere billboard of the availability of salvation. He is coming to be a Savior, the Father is saying. And as a Savior whom I send, He will not fail to save. We don't give Jesus the credit that His name calls us to give Him. We do treat Him like a billboard. Here's salvation. Come and get it. As though the Son, the Father would plan and the Son Himself would go to such great lengths to humble Himself in the womb of a young maiden. And He would live 33 years as a man under the law of God. And would subject himself to suffering, willing suffering, every moment of his life. And he, as that perfect God-man, he would go to the cross and he would be uh, forsaken by all of his friends and all of his family, all those in whom he had invested his, his life and loved selflessly, that he would endure abandonment by them. But even more dramatically than that, that he would be willing to enter a place where He knew he would be forsaken. He would have to be forsaken by his father because he would be made literally sin on that cross by the father's design and his own agreement. And he knew that he would enter all that and enter death 
and rise again from the dead merely to make the possibility of salvation available to people. That's not the Jesus God tells us about in his name. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is no other Jesus. So how do you know you're one of his people? Humble yourself. He's the Savior of the world. Well, how could, how could God make such a guarantee? How could, he, how could he say to us, from the very beginning of Jesus' life, before he's even drawn a breath outside the womb, how could God issue such, such a compelling guarantee saying everything he does is going to succeed? He's not going to fail in anything. Well, that's where the second name comes in, Emmanuel, which is the strategy of his mission to be God with us. The way God can make such a strong and certain promise in the name of Jesus is because of how God is going to bring it about, which is in this incarnate God-man. Now, Clay told you when he read the larger catechism uh, answers that there were only 15. He said maybe he hedged his bet a little bit. He said there are at least 15 reasons or ways that Jesus was a perfect Savior according to those two answers. Well, I think there are 19. I would love for you to find more. I'm not going to settle for fewer. But I encourage you to go work through those answers. I mean, it's just it's so helpful. It's like having a very wise teacher with you. That's how you need to think about the catechism. It's like having a very, uh, having a scripture-saturated, pastorally-minded teacher who's there right at your side, you know, speaking to you from the 17th century, saying, hey, this is what we saw in God's Word about why it was necessary for Jesus to be fully God. And the answers are incredible. If He wasn't fully God, He wouldn't have been able to bear the wrath of God. If He wasn't fully God, He wouldn't be able to deliver to God a human life of perfect holiness. If He wasn't fully God... He wouldn't have been able to actually, through his life, purchase a particular people. If he wasn't fully God, he couldn't have been a savior. But he also has to be fully man at the same time, because if he's not fully man, then how could he be the savior of men? If he hadn't been a child, how could he be the savior of children? If, if he wasn't fully man and experienced temptation as we experience, how could, how could his prayers and his intercession for us uh, be really helpful? But notice how the, the catechism answer 39 says he has fellow feeling of our infirmities. Oh. So, you know, the, the, the Savior who lived and walked on earth and now is in heaven has fellow feeling with your infirmities, friends. There's nothing that you're going through or have gone through where Jesus is on the outside of it saying, I can't relate to that. The fact that he is fully man means that whatever you are going through, he can fully relate to. 
Remember last week when I tried to summarize the incarnation this way? I said that Jesus Christ was God's greatest gift to men so that Jesus Christ would be man's greatest gift to God. That's the Savior we've been given. That's the one whose life and death are promised by God and his resurrection are promised by God to effectively save us from our sins, which is, regardless of how we feel about it, our greatest need. He was and did for us everything on earth that we needed him to do as our mediator. And he is and does in heaven everything that we need him to be doing for his people in heaven. He is the perfect Savior. That's what Emmanuel makes possible. God with us as one of us. That's Jesus' mission, both in its nature and in its strategy. Now, in closing, what's the message of Jesus Christ and how, how do the names of Jesus bring us to a place where in their relationship, Jesus and Emmanuel, we see uh, the story of the message of Jesus Christ. And in some ways, this is going to overlap with what we've already talked about before. Um, I brought in this third point to about 20 points of things I've already said already, so forgive me. But I, I want to take you back to the promise of Emmanuel, and I want you to think with me about it. Remember what Emmanuel, remember what we said Emmanuel meant in its original context. It meant that God was going to be with his people as a sign, as that Emmanuel, as a sign of his judgment against their unbelief. In other words, he was coming as a judge to bring that Emmanuel sign was to bring God's judgment upon the unbelief of man. And yet now in Matthew 1, 700 some odd years after that prophecy was given, we have Matthew saying, and Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Emmanuel promise. And so that should raise a question for us. Well, how could that be so? That doesn't sound like the gospel, does it? I mean, God coming to judge us for our unbelief, that's not, that's not, that, that's not a Thomas Jefferson approved summary of Christmas. So it must be that Matthew really didn't mean to import all of Isaiah 7. He just liked that word, Emmanuel. Uh Uh-uh. Can't do that. Uh, Matthew, as you'll just see in the first two opening chapters, but it goes throughout the whole gospel, Matthew is an OT man. And he sees Jesus, OT, Old Testament, sorry. He is an Old Testament man and he gets how Jesus is the fulfillment of every page on the Old Testament. He knows. He's bringing the whole story of Isaiah 7 in. Jesus isn't less than what Isaiah 7 shows us. He fulfills it far more than that. Jesus comes. What, uh, what his name, Emmanuel, is showing us is that, and Matthew's announcing to us, and we're going to see it as we get farther in the gospel. Jesus is, in fact, the one who brings God's judgment against the unbelief of men. He does come in order to bring of the judgment of God against the unbelief of men. That's why when his public ministry begins, he says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is, in fact, the presence of God's judgment upon the sins of men. 
And that's the first lesson, friends, when you think about Jesus' presence in the world. We do tend to do that Thomas Jefferson thing, don't we? Where we say, well, the only reason Jesus came is because God is love. And you know what's so dangerous about that? There's a germ of truth in there. But the problem is that word only. Jesus did come because God is love. You can't look at the story of Christmas and not say that God is love. It's absolutely stunning what God was willing to do. How could that not be love? It is love. But if that's the only part of the story we ever talk about, we're not talking about the Jesus God means. Because Jesus did come to bring God's judgment upon the sins of men. Friends, where did his life end up? It ends up at Calvary. Unmistakable, right? God is acting to judge the sins of men there. But at the very same time, Matthew's announcing to us through this promise of God and the name of Jesus that Jesus isn't only coming in judgment. He's coming to save. So in one and the same person, we're going to have the, the judgment of God brought and we're going to have salvation wrought. How does he do that? How could that be? See, this is one of those places where when I think about what the gospel means and how God's word brings the strands together, I bow in joy and in wonder over how perfect the plan of God is. No man could make this up. It is absolutely perfect. You see, what happens is God comes in Jesus as Emmanuel to bring the judgment of God. And how is it that he saves at the very same time? By being the one who bears that judgment. He comes simultaneously to be the bringer of God's judgment and the savior of those who are under God's judgment for their sins. And how does he accomplish it? By bringing that judgment of God down upon himself. So that he can truly be God with us to judge the sins of men. And Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, who in that very same act of bringing the judgment of God down upon himself for the sins of men, he is purchasing a salvation for those very same men. It is totally brilliant. It is so beautiful. It completes every answer that we need to have for God. There is no one who has ever lived who has sinned in such a way or to such an extent or has lived for so long in such a way that they would ever be excluded. That their their life, their sinning or their God disavowing or whatever it is, their God Hating would be more powerful than the completeness of Jesus' work as both Emmanuel. No one can disqualify him from being the savior of his people from all their sins. His work is that perfect. So let me add one prong to the definition of the incarnation that I gave you last week. 
Jesus Christ was God's greatest gift to man so that Jesus Christ would be man's greatest gift to God. And there's another so that. So that God, in His mercy and love for the world, could offer that perfect Savior back to the world that crucified Him. To the sinners who crucified Him. To the sinners, the very sinners who've lived their lives in such a way that you couldn't tell from their lives that Jesus was Lord. And friends, that same perfect Savior, nothing has changed. That same perfect Savior is being offered today. God is not done bringing honor to His Son. He is not done causing knees to bend before the glory of Jesus. He is nowhere near finished. There are more of His people who need to be saved from their sins. And so the news of the Gospel, not just the birth of Jesus, but the life that flowed from that birth and the death that flowed from that birth and the resurrection that flowed from that birth and the heavenly intercession that flowed from that birth and the triumphant return that flows from that birth. All of that good news is part of the Gospel. And that news is going out. And it goes out this morning. And some of you are Christians. And the message is for you just as much as it is for non-Christians. Come to that Christ again. Find in those names, again, His true names, the true story of Jesus. Let the truth about these names push out all the caricatures of Jesus that are operating in your mind and your heart. And let God carry you back to the wonder of what He's done in Christ and bow your knee again for the millionth time in love and adoration of that Savior. But some of you are non-Christians. Some of you are not yet converted. And God wants you to be. There is no reason for you not to bow your knee to Christ. Everything you need to reconcile you fully to God, to guard you and keep you forever, for that eternal inheritance that Christ has purchased is in Christ. So come to Him. His names are wonderful, aren't they? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for how wonderful Your names are. We don't have to bear our own judgment. You came to bring it down on yourself as our substitute so that you could be our Savior. Oh, Lord, get in our hearts more deeply. Get in our minds. Push yourself to the front. It's where you belong. We pray in Jesus' name. Please stand and sing, It Came Upon the Midnight Clear.